We are happy to announce that this episode of the SW Show is partially brought to you by Humble Bundle. Well, not, not really. We are part of the Humble Bundle referral program, and we just wanted to say that if you like really cheap games and maybe helping charity pending the Humble thing going on, all you have to do is go to humblebundle.com forward slash question mark partner equals SWW. That's right. Humblebundle.com forward slash question mark partner equals SWW. And you just do your normal stuff and it just kind of helps us get a couple bucks here and there. Maybe it helps AJ go about his lights. Maybe it's my camera. Maybe we actually pay Corey for helping us out. But again, if you're going to go buy games anyway, it might be worth checking out. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to these interview episodes of the SWW Show. I am Mike, and today with me a special guest from decently around the world. To get us started, do you mind introducing yourself in the game we're here to talk about? Yeah, sure. Um, I'm James, uh, also known as Lovely Hell Place, and um, I'm making Dread Delusion a weird uh, retro-style RPG that's being published by Dread XP. Yeah, let's, let's kind of start with that one then. So you said it's a retro style RPG. What what do you like? Because I have probably some ideas of in my head what that would mean. But like to, when you explain to the people and they go, "What does that mean? What what is a retro style to you?" Well, I kind of use the term retro style because it's quite vague, and <laughs> the scene kind of contains so many different um, interpretations. Um, but I mean, I kind of started in the haunted PS1 scene like a few years back. That's kind of where I cut my teeth, I guess, which was specifically a, um, uh, you know, it's this community of people that make games, horror games that look like they've been made on the PlayStation 1. Uh, which is quite a specific niche, I guess. But um, I also kind of take inspiration from other people in the kind of indie PC space, like um, people like Lilith Zone, Kitty Horror Show, and uh, New Blood Games like um, Dusk. But um, I suppose I should mention that uh, when I say, I mean retro 3D, um, which kind of... Uh, is this new um, kind of form or artistic form that's vibing off that specific kind of janky uh, retro 3D graphical styles you saw in the PlayStation 1, early PC games, and maybe Nintendo 64. And I suppose it's comparable to like how the indie games when you thought of the indie games in the 2000s they were often using pixel art and they were often kind of looking like snes games or mega drive games but i think more and more recently you're seeing this resurgence or um of the artistic styles used in uh early 3d games uh, which i think is really cool um it's a very interesting obvious phenomenon is only a couple years old kind of because i think it's you kind of see this genres hit this like 15, 20 mark. It's kind of where you see this kind of rise of this kind of looking back at them. Um, I'm going to curious. So mm -hmm. I think when I think of this type of 
like broad genre of this going back to this like graphic type, right? There's two ways to kind of handle these types of games. It is the first way is to be realistic to the time, right? So when you saw the rise of the 8-bit, so people using, like, the NES cartridge maker or whatever, it'd be like, you have to take <laughs> the limitations of the time and really just use modern twists on it, but it's the limitations of the time, versus, like, the Shovel Knight approach, which is the, like, oh, it's inspired by the time, but we totally could not have done this back then. Uh, when, yeah. you, when you look at that kind of game development and looking back on this now area that you're looking at when you're making this game... Which which of those approaches do you kind of favor kind of doing? Um, definitely like the latter, like uh, Dread Delusion would not work on a PlayStation 1, <laughs> even though it uh, kind of um, mimics that style. Because um, for me, the uh, the, st- the graphical style is, is really uh, kind of like an artistic um, aesthetic choice, because I think that by crunching down these graphics into this pixelated um low poly aesthetic i think it creates something that can be really colorful very, really vibrant and um uh, really quite bold um like i think when you in like realistic games you um often a lot of detail is almost lost or there's so much detail that you can sometimes kind of not see the wood for the trees. Like it's hard to really notice what elements of the game are actually interactive. And, um, you know, you, uh, and it's also just like such a vast amount of work. Uh, And you end up with realistic games. Often you end up with them kind of spending vast sums of money for them all to kind of end up looking roughly the same. (laughs) Whereas I think, um, you know, for me, it's this aste- aesthetic choice of um, having this really bold, vibrant, beautiful um, kind of style that's almost similar to something like um, Impressionism or Cubism in, in the art world. Um, but yeah, I'm not so interested in making sure that the um, the game itself could kind of fit within the confines of an actual PlayStation one game. Although if you can, I mentioned the haunted PS one community before, and there are definitely people on that community that are doing really cool things with really trying to, um, actually emulate what, uh, those old consoles can do, which uh, I think is equally cool. Um, but yeah, I'm personally, I'd rather create a big, crazy Morrowind like world that just has this cool aesthetic. That's a very interesting, yeah, that there's a lot to kind of unpack there. I do want to shout out to kind of when I was looking originally at, at Dread Delusion 2, there is a certain style that you really have. I think I can kind of see that you're from that, like that era is kind of thing that really influenced you. Um, mm-hmm. so, yeah. the thing, so one of the things that like is always interesting about these two is that obviously there is a, the, the style is, is artistically cheaper in the sense of like polys, but it's not artistically easier um, I'm kind of curious if you don't mind talking about challenges you've kind of ran into kind of while, while like initially coming up with this art style kind of like kind of making it feel right. Right. Because like back the, if you're using the idea of like, oh, I have a couple thousand polys or whatever, like you have to say a lot now with, with relatively little to say it in and make stuff feel kind of unique. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely like, um, 
I mean, it also makes me think of um, the artist Mike Mignola, uh, you know, who does Hellboy and stuff. Because um, before I was getting into games, I was kind of into comics. And um, I think a lot of artists are inspired by Mike Mignola because his work is kind of quite simple, almost kind of cartoony, but with this real macabre vibe. And but as you kind of, if you try and emulate his style, you realize that um, kind of, as you say, it's, it actually takes a lot of skill to compress something down into uh, a really simple, you know, it's kind of simplest component parts. And um, yeah, it takes a kind of skill to crunch something down um, into a low poly form and still have it evoke um, the the kind of root objects that you're trying to convey. Um, But actually I think once you, once you get practiced in it and I mean, certainly I uh, find it easier to work in low poly now because once you um, develop your um, style and once you kind of um, uh, know what you're doing with it, um, I really enjoy jumping into Blender and just kind of making strange structures in low poly 3D. Um, but yeah, it is about capturing the essence of a thing, I guess, and trying to compress it down into the um, kind of smallest components you can. So I'm kind of curious, um, for you at least, once you're in the groove of making these these art pieces in, in Blender... Was it faster, would you say, if you than like doing a higher res thing? Because again, it's this. I would say it is in theory easier, but it's it's a lot of times not because there's you can still be the same level of picky <laughs> or whatever. Do you just have less like direct polys to add? <laughs> I think it is. No, it is definitely quicker. Like, and I think that's also why you see. I mean, it can go both ways. Like, but I think really the reason why you see retro 2d as in like pixel art games and retro 3d games being made by indie developers is because by and large it is quicker to make those assets um however um it the it does kind of um vary depending on the artist and the artistry involved like you can get some pixel artists who spend an incredible amount of time on their work and create you know these kind of beautifully rendered um pieces of pixel art and um that would definitely take longer than if you were just um than probably like the average 2d artist making assets for a game so it kind of there's there's a scale i guess like i think it is generally quicker to create these kind of retro assets however you know that's not to say that sometimes um you know um certain artists could spend uh, a huge amount of time creating really kind of precise and beautiful artworks that might take longer. But I mean, I mean, with regards to retro 3d, I mean, it's just the fact that like I only use one texture, right. And actually I have a kind of, I've made, I kind of use pixel art in my textures. They're quite crunchy pixel art textures most of the time. And I make a bunch of textures and then I can just kind of like, uh, unwrap those on the models quite easily um, and they'll just use that one texture. When you've got a realistic model, you will often have like, you know, these days models are so complex that not only will you have 
a much more highly detailed model that will take you longer to make, but you'll use like bump maps, depth maps, you know, you'll have all these different layers of textures and it really does multiply the amount of, you know, work. I kind of joke sometimes that my levels, like the actual level geometry probably has less polygons than like a last of us character's face, you know? <laughs> um, so yeah, I, I think it is easier. Um, that's in yeah. general. That's, that's actually a good kind of point we made there too. Um, let's kind of, I want to jump into with the main time we have now, kind of talking about the gameplay loop and the world itself. Right. So as we said, we talked about, it's a low poly, as you call it, an open world RPG. Uh, your team is not that big, so I'm kind of, I'm kind of curious. Uh, what is the like size and the, the the depth of the world that people can kind of expect playing this game? Well, I mean, it's um, the if you kind of buy it on early access and jump into the world now, you can uh, kind of see these three big islands that. Um, occupy the game space and you can only explore two of them in the current version of the game but those three big islands are most of the size of the world we are planning to add extra islands um there's going to be the main quest is going to take you kind of to the world surface which is going to be this um separate level and then when you come back you're going to be able to explore a few more islands but by and large what you kind of see in the game space is roughly how big the game is going to stay. It's not going to get loads bigger. And that's partly because um, it's fairly easy to kind of create new islands and to add new space, but then it becomes exponentially harder to actually fill those islands with uh, interesting stuff. And from the uh, from the very start, Dread Delusion was pitched as a, a kind of bite-size open-world RPG. Like, we really don't want to create a world that like something like Skyrim, where it's got almost this endless content that you can play for a hundred hours. We're going much more for maybe like the 20 hour mark, like um, the idea of this kind of um, more bite sized world that um, reacts to player input and has all these varied spaces, but also doesn't outstay its welcome and that you can kind of, uh, you know, if you've got a lot, if you've got a free weekend, you could maybe beat the whole game in a weekend or something like, um, because I don't know, I, I, I'm probably not the only person that feels these days, a large amount of kind of open world fatigue, like, uh, you know, um, if you buy the latest kind of hit summer blockbuster in it, then you find out that the story is going to last a hundred hours. I don't know. I'm the kind of person that these days I kind of sigh and, <laughs> you know, um, so I'd rather create something that has that scope and that it still has this kind of quite large space where you can see these cool things in the distance. Like, Oh, what's that tower in the distance? What's that flying ship beyond the horizon? What's that strange temple? And like knowing that you can just set off in any direction and go to those things. But yet also knowing that, this world won't just kind of stretch on for an infinite amount of time with all this kind of like copy and pasted content. And that actually this is all a handcrafted experience that won't outstay its welcome. 
that's a, that's a fine, fun line to kind of follow, right? Because you want the world to feel like, oh, it's still a world that I, I like, at some points I feel like I'll never see the end of, but you also want in the back of the head, but I can see the end of. Because, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was going to say, like, if you walk, like, a Skyrim's, like, the best example of, like, that world is giant. Two-thirds of that rule is, like, oh, it's cool, it's a new random cave I go explore to get this thing, but at the end of the day, it still felt like a random cave to me. Like, there was that, mm. there was that very interesting fine line. Um, but I'm getting curious, because obviously we're talking, the game's in early access. Uh, is there some level of in-your-head kind of thoughts or discussions happening of kind of how to expand that world, kind of? Because in my head, your philosophy would be one of two obvious ways, is you physically expand the world, or you do, like, the... Like I said, the, like the Bethesda RPGs, or a lot of times do, is kind of like a, oh, but here's this new sub-world that now you've teleported to kind of go to, because it kind of gives us this, this like, double sense of, like, oh, there's other parts of this world, kind of... What kind of is your philosophy been, kind of, when you think of the possible future of this game, kind of, throughout development? <laughs> yeah, um... Yeah, we've got like a roadmap planned out. Uh, like we know exactly what the uh, content we want to add is. Um, and the next big thing we're going to do is we're going to add this area called the Clockwork Kingdom, which you can currently see in early access. You can see the island, um, but it's currently empty. Like a few players have uh, boosted their agility stat high enough so that they've been able to like jump the crazy distance uh, to get to the island, only to find it kind of empty of uh, characters and stuff. And that's because um, we've kind of pulled the structures there, but we're going to spend a couple of months um, fleshing out with quests and um, cool things to see and do. And that's going to be the next kind of big content milestone, I suppose. And the Clockwork Kingdom is... Um, I'm quite excited for it. It is a place ruled by a clockwork monarch, which is almost like a um, an artificial intelligence that uh, that's just kind of like made of cogs, gears, and magic. And uh, it um, has created a realm of state-controlled magic um, that um, has kind of become corrupted. And so it was. It's this kind of idea of a of a utopic society. Uh, based on magic and uh, machinery that's um, kind of crumbled on its, under its own weight, and you can kind of explore the the ruins of this failed endeavor. And uh, after that, we are going to expand the main quest because currently there's not. A, you kind of start the game, and it will start off the main quest, which sets you tracking down um, a mercenary called Vila, who is um, a notorious sky pirate. But uh, right now you can't actually progress it very far. Um, and that's because I wanted to flesh out the world before we delved into that um, specific storyline. Um, so, it's actually... Sorry. I was going to say, the, the thing I want to jump in there, though, because I'm kind of curious about is, so obviously, when you when you create a new world, you have to teach people about the world, right? right? Through some way. Mm. Uh, and obviously, I think the most common way for games to do that is through their kind of main quest line, because you could be like, oh, now you go to this town, or you go here, or now you learn about this thing. Um, has 
since you said kind of your your launch philosophy on this was give them the world first and we're going to give them a main quest line down the road how did that change the design and, and then the teaching of people of this world and what to do then since obviously you get to hold their hand a lot less than you would if you had like a main quest line yeah so we um obviously like probably the main influence on the game is the elder scrolls series like bethesda style games um it has a lot more interest uh, it has a lot more inspirations you know um things like dark souls and everything but in terms of the I guess what you'd call like the design, you know, the player loop and everything and the type of world we're building, it has the most in common with Bethesda style games. And as a player in those games, I don't know, I don't know if something, if it's just um, something about me, but when I'm um, playing an Elder Scrolls game, I never progress the main quest. Like I've put probably like, a hundred hours into like, um, I the, the exception is Morrowind. I did complete the quest in Morrowind, but with Oblivion and Skyrim and Fallout Three, in all in all of those, I just kind of set off into the world and did everything but the main quests, <laughs> almost as a kind of teenage rebellion against the game designers. <laughs> um, and the, the, the version of there being like there's too much content and you, like in your head you're picturing todd howard being watching us going tis, tis, tis. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i guess i think yeah i don't know i just um i think i think it started with oblivion when um i knew that if you progressed uh far enough you unlocked the oblivion gates and like hell would spill forth and i kind of didn't want that so i just never um progressed it very far and with Skyrim, I think, I think I also, I've got this aversion to this, um, the, I don't like, um, perhaps it's cause I'm British and a lot of, I've been brought up on these kind of like British stories where the main character are often, is often kind of like this kind of ab- absurdist underdog, but, um, like, uh, I, I kind of don't like the story telling me I'm really special, like, you know, like I dislike it in Skyrim when you're you kind of the the fir- the the kind of easiest first quest is to like slay a dragon, and then everyone's like, "Oh my god, you're amazing!" And it's like, but I'm not though. That was quite an easy quest. <laughs> you know, that was like the tutorial or whatever. And um, so I think I have this aversion to. I just want to be a nobody. Like I want to. I want to go off and I want to um, kind of be this kind of vagrant wanderer who's just nobody's ever heard of. And I just want to go and kind of like, uh, yeah, be this almost like voyeur in these different towns and cities who just happens to be in the right place at the right time. And so, yeah, I just, I kind of avoid these main quests. And I think that's big when I was making an open world game, but I think that the main quest is important. Like I like that those main quests are there so that I'm willingly, not doing them <laughs> if you know what i mean and um so when i'm set out to make dread delusion my main priority was making sure that the world could stand up on its own and that it um kind of reacted to the kind of player like me who wants to just uh completely run away from their uh <laughs> you know destiny and just kind of do silly things um and so 
yeah, that's my priority really is is making sure that the world ha- holds up as a kind of collection of cool areas and side quests and that that um, is an interesting and engaging place. And then um, next we're going to build out the main quest, which is going to be, you know, mostly a linear affair, um, quite like um, Elder Scrolls and stuff. But um, there are going to be choices that happen in the main quest that will change the world and um, kind of change the ending that you get. Um, and despite everything I said about main quests, I am actually quite excited for the main quest we're going to put in. I've, I think it's going to be a pretty cool story. And I think hopefully players will want, unlike my experience with Elder Scrolls games, hopefully, um, players will want to kind of follow the main quest and, uh, will be excited for all that stuff. Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah, it is a, it's always that fun challenge though. Once you give someone freedom in these kind of worlds, you're like, but you have to follow this one line. And that, like, you always get those people who are like, no, because people are, yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I do. I do really ref, like, I like the thing you said about like, even if you look back at like oblivion and there's like that one marker where all of a sudden the world entirely changes. Like it is this line of like, cause there's always that player who will want the world before that one of those moments. Mm. So it is this fun thing. Um, but yeah, so as we're talking, the game is in early access on, on Steam. It is Dread Delusion. It is for 1999 uh, USD. God bless if you need to figure out your local currency. Just go on Steam and figure it out. Um, I, I'm kind of curious then. So the game's been out now for a month and a half, I think, on early access. Uh, what is, I know we've kind of talked about it in broad strokes, but like, is there any estimated time of when people could expect these updates or this main quest line, or is it just kind of pay attention and we'll announce as it gets closer to? Well, we're hoping to have the game done in about, um, we said that uh, when we launched into early access, we said that we were hoping to have it done within six to nine months. Um, and so that probably gives us about eight months left. So we're hoping to have it kind of, uh finished within eight months although obviously um game development is a uh <laughs> you know an a very unpredictable art and uh it could be longer than that but um we're, we're trying to release updates uh every few weeks really um we just put out an update um a couple of weeks ago that added loads new loads of more features to do with factions and like a, a new little island that flies above uh Hallowshire and um added in kind of this kind of mine dungeon and some new weapons and stuff. So uh if you pick up early access you can expect to have a kind of drip feed of content. Um I'm not um and like I say probably in the next um Hopefully in, in roughly kind of six to eight weeks, the next big, big update will be the Clockwork Kingdom. And then um, and then probably every month from then on, we'll add a bit more of the main quest uh, until the game is done. Perfect. Well, I want to say thank you for taking time out of your uh, almost evening to talk to me <laughs> today about Dread Delusion and, and just the fun world of kind of making these RPGs. Uh, best of luck on finishing early access. And again, everyone, if you want to go check it out, it is Dread Delusion on Steam, currently in early access. Uh, again, thank you for your time today. Thanks very much, Mike. Thank you.
The SW Show and all of its affiliate podcasts are podcast by me, Mike Maroney, and AJ Losey, by sometimes by our contributors, including Corey King. You can follow the SWW Show on social media at the SWW Show, or sooner or later you go to the patreon.com slash SWW to help us out. Thank you. We hope you enjoy the rest of your day.